Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Good morning again. I'm Tony, and we're going to be continuing in our series in Mark, and today we're in Mark 11:27 through 12:12. 12, 12. So if you have your Bibles and you want to pull it out and look at it there, it'll also be in the worship folder and on the screen behind me. So let's read. <clears throat> and they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants and to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. We please say this with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So as most of you know, uh, we were missionaries for a while in Nicaragua, and when we were there, it was kind of hard to get around. And one of the reasons why it's hard to get around in Nicaragua was because they don't have street signs. So every street has a name. Uh, it's just not advertised. You just don't know. You don't see it. So I guess if you know, you know. But I didn't know. And so it was always hard to get around. Uh, and not only that, but a lot of the houses didn't have their house number on it. So, of course, the houses had numbers. They just weren't always advertised either. And then, to make matters even worse for me, because I'm not good with directions, uh, data plans were expensive there, so I couldn't use Google Maps, which was really good and could tell you where to get places. We had to use other ones, some open source ones that really weren't that good and weren't that precise, but you could use them without data. And so it was hard to get around. So 
One time when we were there, hadn't been there for very long, our parents had sent uh, a package to us, and they sent it, they shipped it from Miami to Nicaragua. And so I had to go and pick it up. And the office was in a neighborhood, and it was in a house, and it was in house 13. So I go, and I, I drive around, and it takes me a while just to even kind of find the neighborhood. I find the neighborhood, and I'm looking around, and I cannot find house 13. Uh, so I don't really like asking for directions. I'm one of those people. Uh, and so if you don't like asking for directions in English or your own language, you really don't like to ask for directions in another language. But, I mean, I wanted to get my stuff. So I see a guard, and I decide I'm going to ask for directions. So I say to him, hey, do you know where house 13 is? And he looks at me kind of funny, and he says, uh, I don't know, maybe up the hill. So I continue driving up the hill, and I'm, I'm looking around, and every now and then I catch a house number, and I'm seeing it's like the 70s, the 80s, eventually we're in the hundreds. Like, this can't be right, you know? So I'm circling around, and I'm looking for 15, 20 minutes trying to find this house, and finally I find house 13. And I park, and I, I get out, and I look down, and two houses away was the guard the, the guy who I had asked. And so I'm happy to get my stuff, but I'm angry at him. And because, uh, you know, why, why did he do that with me? Is he, just, is he just too dumb? Is he a dummy? He doesn't know where house, I mean, he's at house 15. He can't do the math. I get home and, you know, we open the stuff and we're all excited about it. But I'm telling my story to Amber, like, you are not going to believe this guy. And so she says, well, what did you actually say? to him. And so I said, I was looking for house diez y tres. And if you know Spanish, that is not the number 13. <laughs> so she starts laughing at me and she says, no, trece, that's Spanish for 13. I was confident that there was a dummy in my conversation with the guard. And there was. It was me, right? I'm the problem. It's me. And so we can get to some of these passages where Jesus is talking about the Jewish leaders, and we can look at it, and we can get really self-righteous, and we could say, they're the problem. It's them. They're the dummies. But I want us to just pause as we're going through this and ask the question, right? Have some self-reflection. Do I see myself in this scripture? Am I part of the problem as well? Because that's what we have to do when we take a look. The, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they were people just like us. And oftentimes we can make the same mistake. So, so let's kind of look at it in a little bit more detail. At, at first it says Jesus and his disciples are coming into Jerusalem and they're stopped by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And, and that group of people made up uh, a, a semi-autonomous government called the Sanhedrin. They had some authority over things. Everything was under Rome, but they had some authority. They could make certain decisions. They could do some things, and they enjoyed that power, as most people do when they get power, and they didn't want to lose it because uh, they knew that their grasp on power was always shaky. If the people made too much of a fuss, if they lost control of the people, 
then the Roman government would see that they're ineffectual and they'll lose their power. So, so as you see as we go through this, it's always talking about how they're afraid of the people because the people could revolt against them. They could hurt them, you know, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, or they could trigger effects that would cause the Romans to come and take away their power. So they were afraid, but they go to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And this isn't an honest inquiry. They weren't really curious to see where he was coming from. This is more like they're saying, who do you think you are? Right? They, they were on no, who do you think you are coming in here? And uh, what had just happened, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. Like, who, who do you think you are coming in here and doing those things? And so they're not asking an honest question. So Jesus kind of throws them for a loop and he says, he says, what, what authority was uh, John the Baptist have? Was he from God or was he from man? And if you don't know who he was, John the Baptist was a prophet. He was just a few months older than Jesus. And he was there to make the way, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And he did that. He did a great job with that. And then eventually there's a, a powerful scene at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he's baptized by John and then John, he offends King Herod, who was kind of more like a, a governor, but he still had the title king, but he offends him, so he gets put into prison. And king, the king's uh, stepdaughter asks to have John the Baptist's head given to her on a platter. And the king does that. So they kill him, they cut off his head, and they give it to the girl. And everybody knew that the Sanhedrin, that the Jewish leaders didn't like John the Baptist. They all knew that. It was pretty clear. They, they weren't directly responsible for his death, but they weren't too bothered by it either. And this was a pretty fresh thing. This had just happened, you know, maybe a couple of years earlier than this scene. I mean, this was still fresh. And the people knew that they didn't like him, but they themselves thought that John the Baptist was a prophet. So so the Sanhedrin, they're afraid. They, they don't want to stir up the crowd. They don't want to upset anybody. So they say, we don't know. And then Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question either. If you're, going to, if you're not going to answer mine, then I won't answer yours. But then he goes and he gives this parable as kind of a partial reply. And he describes a scenario where there's this vineyard owned by somebody who, doesn't, who lives out of town. He lives far away, but he has a vineyard. And the, the, the agreement was that the people would would work the vineyard, they would get some of the produce, but then some of the produce would go to the master. And this was a common arrangement. People would have understood what was going on. It wasn't all that unique that, that this type of situation would happen. Rich people would own, you know, lands in different parts of the empire, and, and so this would happen. And there would oftentimes be tensions between the landowner and the tenants. And so this idea that then that the landowner is sending servants and the tenants don't like them, they beat them up, they kill them, that might be a little extreme, but, but they, knew, they knew what was going on. And, and there's even a kind of a weird part in here where they say, where the, the father sends the son, and they say, let's kill the son so that we can get the inheritance. And for us, that sounds really weird, because what are the odds, right? What are the odds that the, the dad's going to be like, you killed my son, so now I'm writing it over to you? Not very good. But in those days, uh, if somebody died without an heir, the land would be up for grabs. And so they probably thought if the son's coming, maybe the dad's already dead, so we can kill him, we can hide the body, and we can claim the land, and we can get the inheritance. 
And so that was kind of the setup. That was the parable. And in these parables, there's some aspects of it that are meant to have spiritual significance, and there's some aspects that are just filler for the story, for the story to work. But one of the things, and the main issue here, uh, that everybody understood was that the servants represented prophets, and the tenants represented the Jewish leaders. And it's pretty interesting that with a lot of the parables, everybody's confused. The disciples are confused. They don't know what's going on half the time. But here, the Jewish leaders, they understood what exactly what was going on. They're like, he is talking about us. And if you know the Old Testament, and I know a lot of people don't really know it very well, so we're going to go into it a little bit, but the prophets were often, almost always, to some degree or another, mistreated. Uh, sometimes we think of prophets as like fortune tellers, and they're just going to tell the future. And there were some times where that, of course, happened. But a lot of it, what they were, where they were like auditors coming in to examine how the people of Israel were doing uh, in relationship to their agreement with the Lord. So they were there. They were like, you know, government inspectors. And everybody loves government inspectors, right? That, that's, that's what you love. Somebody looking over your shoulder and telling you what you're doing wrong. And that's what these prophets were. Very rarely did they come to the people of Israel and were like, man, you guys are killing it. Great job. Two thumbs up. You know, that's not, maybe once or twice. But most of the time, it's all bad news. And so they were treated poorly. And then what you have in, in verse 4 of this passage, it says, uh, again, he, he sent to them, the, the landowner, another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And so now what Jesus is doing, that's actually a reference to John the Baptist. So that phrase, struck him on the head, could also mean uh, cut his head off. And so either way, we're just talking about John the Baptist. You start bringing up heads and treated shamefully, and people are making this connection, right? Here are prophets being treated poorly. And so just in case you aren't familiar with the Old Testament, uh, I want to go through and just kind of talk about a couple of the prophets, just so you can kind of see how they were ignored, how they were threatened, how they were killed, how they were mistreated. Kind of help make the parable come alive a little bit. So if you remember, God chose Abraham and said that through Abraham, he was going to bring his kingdom. And Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. That's where we get the name Israel from. He had 12 sons, which became the, the leaders of the heads of the 12 tribes. There's a little weirdness there with, with one of them, but basically that's the setup. They were in Egypt for a while as slaves. They get led out by Moses. They take the promised land. They have a series of judges. And then the final judge was Samuel. And Samuel was a judge, and he was also a prophet. And so he anoints, anoints Saul to be king. And Saul was kind of an interesting guy. Uh, he was kind of like a go-along, get-along kind of guy. He, he wasn't super bad, but he really didn't love the Lord very much. And at one point, Samuel comes to him and he says, God wants you to go and to attack the Amalekites. And he wants you to kill everybody there and everything, all, all the animals, just everything. Just go wipe them out. So Saul goes down there, he defeats the Amalekites, he sets up a monument to himself, which is, you know, kind of awesome, kind of thing that, that we can do sometimes, sets up a monument to himself, and he's headed, he's headed home, and he runs into Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I did everything your God wanted me to do, and Samuel's like, but then why do I hear sheep, right? What, why are there sheep with you? Because he did, he had taken some of the sheep with him, and he says, oh, 
well, don't worry about that. We're going to go sacrifice that to your God, and it's going to be great. And some people think Saul was lying when he said that. I don't think so. Um, there's the type of offering that they were going to probably do would have been a peace offering. And in a peace offering, you get to keep some of the meat, right? So you take the sheep and, and they sacrifice it. The priest gets some and then you get some. So all these men get to come back. They get to have a big barbecue, you know, just like the men's retreat. They're just going to enjoy themselves. And this is going to be great. And they probably saw a situation and thought, you know, God wanted us to kill all the animals. We can do him one better. We'll kill the animals as a sacrifice to him, and we'll do us one better, get to eat them, have a big barbecue. But that's, of course, not what they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> they were supposed to kill them all there. And Samuel gets upset. And it's kind of interesting because throughout the exchange, Saul keeps on referring to God as your God to Samuel, right? Like, hey, I did this for your God. I'm going to sacrifice to your God. And Samuel's probably thinking, don't you mean our God? Right? Aren't we Israel? Isn't this what this is supposed to be? But it wasn't. Because the person that Saul really worshipped was himself. And Saul refused to submit to the Lord in any real way. It's because Saul's real God was Saul. So he didn't take his faith very seriously. Samuel had to secretly anoint another king. He was afraid that if he was found out that he would be killed. And so he anointed David. So after Saul, there was David. Then there was Solomon. Then there was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a punk. That's all you need to know about him. Under him, the kingdom of Israel split into two. And so the northern kingdom, they were always bad. So everything they did was wrong. They got a lot of prophets telling them everything that they're doing wrong. And one of them was Elijah. And Elijah, he was kind of a spitfire kind of guy, and he goes up against Ahab. Ahab was an evil king, and he, he wanted to get the country to worship Baal. And so he brought all these uh, altars to Baals and all these priests to Baal in, and, and that's what he wanted to do. And so Elijah goes against him, and they have this big showdown, and they build these, these altars, and we're going to see whose God is real. So the Baal prophets are trying to call down fire from heaven, and it's not working. They're panicking because everybody's watching. Now I'm embarrassed. And Elijah's over there. He's the patron saint of say, sarcastic people. He's making jokes. I mean, these guys are stressed. They're cutting themselves. And Elijah's over there saying, maybe your God's in the bathroom, right? That's, that's what he says. It was awesome. And so, so that doesn't work. Baal doesn't show up. So Elijah pours water on, his, on the wood. He's just going gonna to make a big show of it. He's like, God, do you hear me? And there's a boom, fire. Wow vindicated. Everybody know Elijah serves God. They go, they kill the, the prophets of Baal, and then Ahab repents and loves Elijah, right? No, no, that's not what happens. Ahab tries to kill Elijah, and he has to run away. Even after Ahab saw that everything that he was serving was fake, even though he saw the power of God displayed in his life, he still refused to submit to his authority even though it was clear. The southern kingdom was better, but not much better, and so they would have good prophets and bad prophets, and in one of the, the main prophets there was Isaiah. And Isaiah is everybody's favorite prophet, unless you're really sarcastic, because that's Elijah, right? So, but everybody else, it's Isaiah. So we just had Christmas time, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I don't know if you've 
You heard that passage? We hear it oftentimes around Christmas. That's Isaiah. We've got Easter coming up. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You're going to be hearing that. That's Isaiah. Every, quotable Isaiah. Everybody loves him. And he also has a brief mention in the book of Hebrews. When it's talking about the people who suffered for God, it has this line, and some were sawn in two. And that's Isaiah. So Isaiah was serving. There was a bad king. He served for a while. There was a bad king, Ahaz, who sacrificed some of his sons to a pagan god, Molech. But they really loved the world. He really loved the world. So he brought some of the pagan idols into the temple to start worshiping them alongside Yahweh. And then after Ahaz, there was actually a good king, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah made reforms. He took all those things out. Everything was going good. He changed things. Isaiah's probably happy and relieved. But then Hezekiah dies, and his son Manasseh takes over. And Manasseh was a bad guy, and he decided to follow after his grandfather. I don't know if his grandfather gave him more lollipops when he was a kid than, than Hezekiah or what, but he decides to go follow him. So he undoes all the reforms, he brings the pagan things back into the idols, and he kills everybody associated with his father's reforms, including Isaiah. And, and we, we don't know exactly, but some say he was hiding in a tree, and some say he was put in a tree, and then he was sawn in two. Ahaz and Manasseh were so in love with the ways of the world that they tried to mix worshiping the world's idols with the worship of the one true God. And they too rejected the authority of God. And if we had time, we could go on and we could talk about more and more of the prophets and how they were mistreated and how everybody who opposed them were bad because they were from the Lord. But we're not going to go on more about them. But the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders who were listening to this story, they would have agreed that all of these people were bad people. They would have agreed that it was wrong for Ahab to, to, to fight against Elijah. They would have agreed that Manasseh was an evil king. They would have agreed with all those things. But even as Jesus is giving this parable, they never look at themselves. I think about the meme. It's based on a British little comedy sketch with two Jewish, uh, or two German officers, sorry, in World War II, and they're looking at each other, and one of them says, are we the baddies, Right? And I don't know if you've seen that, but that, that's kind of what they need to do. They need to look at each other at some point and say, are we the baddies? Because in verse 12 it says, after Jesus talks about all this, they were still seeking to arrest him. They're so offended that Jesus is lumping them in with murderers that they say, what do we do with this guy? Let's murder him, right? And they do not see the problem there. Even though they understood the parable, they still rejected him and wanted to kill him. They still wanted to live on their own terms. So we too need to pause and examine the story and examine our own hearts in this. Are we in the story? I think the question is how often are we like Saul, not fearing God, not really taking our faith seriously, just trying to be faithful enough to stay in God's good graces, but really just looking out for ourselves. How often do we worship ourselves as God? How often are we like Ahab, 
We've seen the power of God in our lives and in the lives of others, but, we're, but we've seen the emptiness of the way of the world lives, lives, the way the world lives, but we still want to live by the world's way. How often are we like Ahaz and Manasseh, falling in love with the world and desiring its wisdoms over God, and we put up altars to the false gods of the world in the temple of our hearts? How often are we like the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, so afraid of losing our autonomy that we are unwilling to submit to anyone's authority, even Jesus's? See, the reality is when we reject God's rule in our life, that's sin. (laughs) And sin is not neutral. And what Jesus is saying in this story is that as we sin and as we rebel against God, we're actually joining in with the people who persecuted the prophets and who killed Jesus himself. Sometimes there's a debate over whether or not the Romans were more responsible for Jesus' death, or the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death. But the right answer is it doesn't matter because it was me. I did it. And it was you. You did it. Because our sins is what caused him to go to the cross. And so if that's true, and if we are participators in Christ's death, then his judgment on our sin is just. And what does Jesus say here? What will the master do? He will go and he destroy the tenants. And so we live under this judgment because of our sin. And, and why do we do it? We do it because we think we'll get an inheritance. Right? We think if we can reject God, if we can reject Jesus' rule, then we can set up our own way of life, our own rule, and we can live by our own moral code. But even that we fall short of. <laughs> we create a custom-fitted moral code to exalt ourselves, and we fall short of that as well. We can't get the inheritance through our own power. But God loves us. And that's why he sent Jesus to die for us. See, the one part of the story uh, of the parable that that doesn't really connect is the part where the father sent the son hoping that they would respect the son. Because God the father knew that Jesus was going to be rejected. And Jesus came knowing he was going to be rejected. That's why they, they referenced that passage, the stone that the builders rejected. They knew what was going on when they came, when he came. Born, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and died for our sins. He died so that he could change the evil tenants into beloved sons and daughters. And he was buried, he rose again, and then he invites us that we can repent of our sins, we can put our hope and our faith in him, and then we can be adopted as his sons and daughters. And that's the way we get the inheritance, right? By being his children. So if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith in Christ, then I hope that uh, during the time, we're about to take communion in a couple of minutes, and I hope that during that time, instead of coming up and, and taking the communion, you would sit there and you'd think about it, you'd pray, and you'd make yourself right with the Lord. But most of us are believers, and well, it's good and we need to examine ourselves in the stories and we need to know our sins and where we fall short. Uh, it's also important to know where we are not in the story, right? Because we're not tenants anymore. If you're in Christ, you're loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven, and you are now his beloved child. And that's the big difference. 
It's helpful sometimes to know the depths of your sin to understand how much greater his love is for us than our sins. Just like the song we're going to sing says, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And we fail and we mess up. But the Lord promises to keep us as his children. And one of the ways we see that promise is in communion. And so I'm so excited that we get to take the Lord's Supper today. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we often fail to live up to you. We fail to live under your authority. We try to set up our own rule. But in your love, you keep us close to you. We thank you that we're no longer tenants, but we are beloved sons and daughters, fully accepted in spite of our sin, because you paid for our sin, and you cleansed us. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The promise here of the benediction is that we are no longer tenants, but we are fully accepted and beloved adopted children when the lord thinks about you if you're in christ when he thinks about you it's with a smile on his face and joy in his heart so adopted children of god receive your benediction may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore amen go in his peace Amen.